Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to the Umarpreneur Podcast. I have the pleasure today to interview and bring on the podcast with me, Brother Jilani Gulam, who is a entrepreneur, CEO. He's an investor within the health tech industry, as well as a business coach and mentor for future entrepreneurs. So mashallah, he's a very well-rounded individual with lots of experiences um, to share and also multiple successful exits in business. So I really want to dive into his mind today on the podcast and share with you, maybe if extract a bit of gold here that I can share with you guys today uh, for you entrepreneurs that are going through this journey that are either starting your business or growing your business inshallah brother jilani assalamu alaikum thank you for so much for joining me today i appreciate it Waalaikum salam brother abi nice to be on the show definitely it's uh the pleasure is all mine and i like to always start with a little bit of background on the guest for people to know more about you so can you share with us a bit more about your story as an entrepreneur kind of give us the bird's eye view of how you got to where you are today sure thank you um yeah, I think um, my entrepreneurial journey, I mean, it really started from childhood. You know, I, I was the uh, son of an immigrant. Um, we came from Bangladesh. I was actually born there. Um, and uh, I came to the UK at the age of five. And, you know, very quickly, I kind of noticed everyone in my family is in business in, in one way, shape or form. From a very young age, I was, you know, doing my dad's, uh, bookkeeping i was helping him you know uh collect money from clients loading vans and so on and so forth so i think it kind of runs in a family it's pretty much it wasn't um, something that i uh was introduced to as a formal uh program it's just it was just something that we do um and so therefore you know from a young age i was i was blooded um i i kind of like i said i came to this country and you know very quickly um i actually learned to program in in basic before i could learn english grammar uh which was one of the word quirks because you know i just took to computers and this is in the in the 80s this is like in the in the mid 80s when it wasn't so trendy and maybe you know kids that were playing with computers you know usually got bullied so it it it, it, it kind of wasn't something that you admitted to right um and just from there you know that uh interest morphed into something a bit uh, more serious i did my degree in business economics um and then i kind of graduated into the dot-com boom um everybody was talking about it in those days um and you know there was this thing for many of the younger younger guys and and, you know, and girls they probably won't know but there was something called the doc uh, uh, y2k which um you know if you're slightly older you'll know if you know you know there was a view around about 1999 that when when we go into the next millennium all the computers are going to stop working because yes. the uh, there'll be an extra digit and you know these these uh, chips and and circuit boards just aren't ready for it so i spent i actually graduated into that and very quickly realized that uh you know the power of fear and and reassurance is quite powerful it's quite lucrative so i spent a lot of time you know reassuring it, uh execs that things won't go bad and you know things won't blow up and and it will be fine mm. um and then from the, yeah, and then from there, it kind of uh, started started uh, my first company at the age of twenty one, which wasn't it actually wasn't very very successful. Um, and then I learned a, a ton from there. And then I guess by the age of thirty five, you know, I I, I wanted to uh, do it again. Um, and you know, that's when my first major uh, breakthrough was launched. So what was what was your first major breakthrough? Tell us more about that. Well, what was the business about? So, so the the first thing we really, you know, that that I personally did did quite well with was uh, really um, we we saw a gap. Me and my business partner, we we, we saw a gap 
um, in the way the NHS was was changing. So this is around 2010. And we can see that the entire commissioning landscape was changing. And for those that don't understand what that means, it means the way services are actually uh, commissioned, you know, you know, you know, designed and, and actually uh, rolled out was changing. So um, we saw a need for data and we saw a need for um, really supporting clinicians you know, uh, with that data. Um, and that's where uh, Health IQ, the, the first company that that I, you know, as I said, did 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 very well with, was was founded. And essentially, from there, what we realised very quickly was the market that we're targeting. Um, although it was it was you know uh, interesting, we found that we had to pivot into life sciences, um, and that's one of the first, I guess, major lessons we found was. Um, you know, you may have a business plan and, you know, most entrepreneurs will will sell you a dream and they'll say, yeah, you know, everything was planned and we had this vision and it was great. And, and, and it, the reality is, you know, you kind of, you know, we, we give the analogy of a boat. You, 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 you kind of get on a boat and you're kind of heading west and you know that you need to go to west, but you don't know exactly where. And you just mm -hmm. get on this boat and, you know, you start to realize as you get you know, closer to the horizon, you see an island and you kind of get off the island and then you work out if the island's for you and if it's not, then you get uh, back on your boat. And that is how entrepreneurship is because anyone that plans for more than six months, anything you plan for more than six months, there's a level of uncertainty. Beyond a year, there's a lot of uncertainty. Beyond three years is anybody's guess. I mean, three years ago, we just encountered COVID. Britain was uh, uh, still part of the EU. There was no war in Ukraine. So that's just three years. So you can imagine you know, planning in that kind of scenario is very difficult. Um, so, you know, we learned many, many lessons, but one of the key things we learned is the business that you start with is not the one you necessarily may end with. Yeah, definitely. And, and it was interesting about your story as well that I do want to highlight is that you mentioned that your, your breakthrough came when, when you were 35, but how many yep. years before that were you in entrepreneurship? I was in entrepreneurship from the age of age of ten or eleven, to be honest with you. Um, so, so quite a while, just to kind of put yeah. a highlight on that. You know, more than a decade, and it's interesting yeah. because I talk, I talked to so many entrepreneurs, and I think this is something really important to highlight. Is even for myself, self, it's an important reminder is we, we get into business and we think like, this is it. Like we have to be millionaires overnight or else like something's wrong with us. And innately, we're not meant to be entrepreneurs or the business we're working on is, is, is a failure. And I think it's important to put into context that, you know, when you really talk to, to, to entrepreneurs such as yourself that have been in the game for so long, it, it's really never, hey, we, we made it like in a year, we made it in two. Those are the unicorns as, as they say, right? Like the exception to the rule, but the, the majority of people it takes them years, decades to finally get to the level where they have their big breakthrough, yeah. right? Uh, how was it for you to go through that journey? And, and did you at any point in time, I, I don't know if you can recall how, what you were thinking about, but at any point in time feel like you wanted to give up or feel like, you know, you had certain expectations that weren't met and that was having an impact on you mentally? You know, um, my ethos in life is, and it has always been actually from a very young age, and I think it's it's probably come from my father actually. Um, um, is you know um, never never follow the money. Mm. And if you think about the best entrepreneurs, the very best, you find that irony in them. So, for example, Steve Jobs wasn't really about the money. I mean, oh yes, he, you know he was he was very rich, of course, but 
But it wasn't really about the money. He, his, his whole ethos was he wanted to redefine the experience between the user and the computer. He wanted to introduce the computer to the world so that it can, mm-hmm. it can you know, do very creative things. So he had a very high, high creative bar. And, you know, okay, that's his style. But I think the lesson for me from this, and I think, you know, uh, within myself is just be the best you can be. If you focus on quality and you focus on, on giving back, money follows you. You do not have to chase mm-hmm. it. Whereas yeah. if you follow money, you will find that there are a number of challenges. So so I'm not saying I don't like money, by the way. I'm not saying that at all. I do like money. I like nice things like anybody else does. But if you focus on some, you know, really building a business that delivers good things, you know, solves problems and give, gives people's you know, needs met as such, mm. you will find that that will take care of itself. And so, yes, I did have, you know, moments of doubt. Of course I did. Um, but on the whole, I've always been very positive because my view is whether or not we make financial success, as long as you did your best and as long as you gave back to your customers, hey, you know, that's the best you can do. Mm-hmm. Would you say that at, at this stage that you're you're at, you're in right now, that you're still learning more about business, more about entrepreneurship, more about success as a whole? Do you feel like you're still on that journey or are you more in a phase of giving back or is it always a journey of both? You know, it's really corny to say, but but you're always a student, right? You know, you mm-hmm. you how, how can you ever say that you know everything? That's just not really possible. You know, um, I'm learning every single day. You know, the market changes. You know, you know there are things today that were not conceivable even three, four years ago. You know, AI, chatbots, mm-hmm. foundational models. These are new things, you know, who's the expert in those areas? Nobody's an expert in those areas, right? Um, you know, and that's that's just a market changing. You know, there, there are things about the business, there are things about yourself you learn only when you put yourself in particular situations. So, you know, um, yes, we're learning every single day. Um, I also think that you don't have to wait till you get to the top to give back. I feel that that is a, a obligation in all people that if you have a skill, Whatever that skill is, whether it's entrepreneurship or it's something else, you know, it might be Arabic, it might be something else. You have an obligation to teach it to people. Uh, so, yeah. so, so I, I believe in 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 both of those truisms, really. Definitely. So, as an entrepreneur yourself, who has, mashallah, been able to have uh, multiple exits in business, one question that I have for you is, what have you seen to be maybe the top two or three biggest things in business? that you need to focus on if you want to build a sellable company, a company that can actually be resold, can continue to grow without your per, your presence as the founder? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I, I think, you know, the first of all, you need to, it, again, it sounds really simple and, you know, it's probably, probably rephrased everywhere else, but you mm-hmm. have to solve a problem that really exists in the real world. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that is a number one thing. You, you have to have... Your business has to has to solve human problems. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, then you you will become irrelevant with time. Mm-hmm. Number two, your culture within the business has to be bigger than you. Mm-hmm. If you want to leave the business, you want to scale that business. At some point, you want to leave and do something else. Your culture has to be bigger than you. And we can discuss that. I can write books. I mean, we can talk about this for a long time. What is I actually what I would like to? I would like. I would love to actually. I would <laughs> love, love to. to I would, I would love to talk about culture. I would love to talk about culture. And and the third thing is, you have to stay humble. Mm. You know, it, and what I mean by that is really precise things. I, I don't mean these in really like corny things or 
quoting a hadith or something and saying, you know, be humble. No, what I mean is, what is humility really? Humility is the acknowledgement that we do not know everything. Hmm. It's very simple. We do not know everything. And we can learn from anyone who possesses the knowledge. That's what humility really is. And sometimes humility, it's a, you, know, you, know, you know, you learn from failure. Sometimes you learn from your children. Sometimes you learn from your wife. Sometimes you learn from your employees. Sometimes you learn from the market. You learn from customers. So those three things together, as I said, you have to have a you have to have a problem. You, your business needs to have a problem it solves. Number two, you have to build a culture bigger than you, and you have to apply the culture to yourself as much as you, you apply it to anybody else. And number three, you have to be humble. And I think those three things are one deals really. Okay, so I want to dive into each one of these a little bit deeper, if that's okay with you. So number one, we started with solving a problem, right? And solving a problem that really exists in the real world. So at the core of it, every business needs to be built upon a really great offer, right? Which is ultimately what you're saying as well, which is like solving that that, that problem, a very painful problem for an audience, you know, mm -hmm. and, and really giving them a clear solution where they can see, okay, this solution is superior to all other solutions that I'm currently utilizing. Now, mm -hmm. is there... For you specifically, as an entrepreneur who's built multiple businesses, you know, there's kind of two questions that come up for me. Number one is the problem is important, but I think if you were to accord importance between problem and execution, how would you define how would you divide that percentage between oh, problem wow. and execution? Um, right. Well, I, I would look at it slightly differently. I think one needs to exist. So one is fundamental to your existence. Mm. The other one is it becomes more and more important as you scale. Okay. Okay. So and what do I mean by that? So if you do not build your business on uh, solving your customer's needs, your business would not exist. Mm -hmm. as, as you solve your customer's needs, your execution becomes more and more important. As you scale, um, the percentage changes. And uh, you know, as you get to you know, post 100 million, for example, your execution is probably 80% of your of your time, 80, 90% of your time. Um, and so you have new new challenges, which is how do you stay relevant? How do you innovate? And so, so that, I mean, but that's really another discussion. But but in, but in terms of which one would I prioritize? Well, one is fundamental to your existence. Um, so in the initial stages, your, your, your fundamental need is more important. But as time goes on, your execution becomes more and more important. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at execution and scale, one thing that I'm experiencing, for example, in my own business with an entrepreneur is we're slowly growing the team. And, and, and as the team grew first, it was kind of like every person was a jack of all trades. And now as the team's growing, it's like, oh, now we have real departments and every person is in charge of a certain department. And now it's where I'm kind of at the level where, okay, now I'm actually starting to place managers within each one of these departments and starting to delegate the management process. And it's interesting because every single phase within that has its challenges. Uh, but one of the things I have noticed is that throughout each one of these phases, one thing that is kind of like almost the foundation, the bedrock that supports each one of these stages is the is the company culture. And it's what you talked about earlier. And so I'm, it's something that, I, as you mentioned, we can talk about for hours. But one big thing that you said that really stood out to me is that your culture within the business has to be bigger than you. Now, it's interesting because especially for someone coming from my background, within the online business space, which is a little bit different than other spaces right now, there usually has to be a certain public figure associated to the business that people can relate to and connect with, especially if you're building a business uh, within the coaching, consultancy field, mentorship field, people want to connect with the person behind the business, right? That's going to offer the mentorship and coaching. Now, how do you then overcome this challenge to try to build 
a culture where you're not necessarily always the center of attention and even ultimately maybe a business where you can detach from that business eventually. And I know it's a big question for you. I'm being a little selfish. I'm asking it for myself, <laughs> but I'm sure other people can relate to it. Um, yeah, I mean, you have a very particular challenge. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Let's let's just backtrack a little bit and let's sure. talk about it in a, in a more generic sense. So, so, so... Uh, what is culture first of all mm. right what is culture what what is it really right um and culture is the way i explain it is culture is the rules that people apply when you're not there that's what culture really is right mm. so you could have a rule that says for example no discrimination right but in reality everyone discriminates so that that is not that's not part of your culture that's just a rule you have to put in because it was i don't know whatever for for uh, whatever reason so so and if you think about any 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 place, whether it's a home, whether it's a community, whether it's a company or a society, there are laws, there are norms that people abide by. And you have to be very deliberate about those norms. And so there are things that you just should never tolerate, that, just red lines, right? Mm-hmm. Never, ever tolerate the violation of the red. That's how you build culture. Um, so, so, so that's what culture is. It's, it's mm-hmm. the, it's the, it's the um, subliminal rules that people apply. Okay, that is, that's what culture really is, and it's built over time. It's never built by, by, and it's built by behavior. So you can only build culture by what you do, not what you say. That that's why culture is so powerful. So that's why the best example for for Muslims is obviously the Prophet Muhammad And if you look at the application of Islam, it, the Prophet applied it upon himself and his family first, and he was the most rigid in the application because he was not beyond it, and therefore everybody followed that. So that's what culture is. Mm-hmm. Now, so so then, h- how do you build it? So then you have to understand what is important. What well, what is really, really, really important? And you know, I, I advise people to study great leaders. And the greatest leader, in my opinion, is is the Prophet Muhammad So not not just by my estimation, but by many Western uh, thinkers um, as well. And so so mm-hmm. so if you then think about what are we taught and what what should you be applying? I would say there, there are three or four things that I have discovered over time that is very important. Number one, your culture has to be built on thinking. Thinking for, you know, so that's the number one thing. The only currency that matters in your company, in your organization, in your home, in your household is thought. And w- why is that important? Because if you think about it, if we just go back, we said we, we solve problems. Okay, problems vary. So you don't want to be the only person in your company that can solve problems. You, you know, you you want everybody to be able to solve problems. In order for you to be able to, you know, in in order for for everybody to be able to solve problems, you've got to have a culture that encourages thinking, where people can question you, they can challenge you. You have to explain your thinking, explain your approach for for one year, two years, three years, and let people challenge you. And if they are correct, then you should change your opinion. So that's number one. That's that's golden rule number one. Um, and you know. We said in our culture, in fact, what we wrote in all our handbooks and everything, that in this company, the best idea wins. It's very simple. That that was our motto, the best idea wins. Um, and anybody can be challenged, any leader can be challenged, and you have to take time to actually answer that. If we found it, so now, so that, that that's the rule, that's the application of the rule. How did we implement it? If we found any leader in the company was not able to justify their opinion intellectually, and had to had to make recourse to the admin or the you know the whatever you know the penalty or whatever we would remove that leader mm. because you're not fit to be a leader who leads by thought 
And leader who leads by thought doesn't have to be correct. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to be right all the time. You just have to be able to listen. You have to be an intelligent person, listen, and be able to modify your thinking according to the truth that's presented in front of you. And that becomes very powerful. As time goes on, the best ideas come from your staff because they're at the front face. They're talking to customers every day. You're not. You become more and more divorced. So they are telling you more and more about what's really going on in the market. And if you are not listening to them, you will become redundant. That's why it's such a powerful thing. And it, 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 it kind of permeates and goes beyond you as an individual. Number two, in your culture, you have to, people need to be comfortable with measuring everything. The only currency, so we said that uh, thinking is 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 a standard, but how does one think? How does one convince somebody? We said you have to bring the evidence. So we measure everything. As long as you can evidentially prove your point with data and facts, we are willing to listen to you. So we measured everything in our company from you know what time people clocked in, what time people clocked out. Not really because we wanted to. We 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 never used it against the staff. We just wanted to understand. Hey, how effective are people? Yeah, we we looked at, for example, customer returns. How many times are customers returning stuff to us? You know, um, we looked at you know things like uh, customer engagement. We looked at, for example, upsell rates. We looked at you know the number of complaints. We 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 made sure that every complaint from a customer is escalated to the CEO directly, with nobody in between. We don't want anyone in between the complainant and the CEO. So that used to come to me directly, and I would talk to the customer because I don't want anybody interpreting what this customer is telling me. I want to hear it from, from, from myself. So truth becomes the most important thing, and you build a company um, with processes and principles that extracts the truth. That's your job as the CEO. Because as time goes on, people distort the truth. Sometimes not because they're liars, but it's just a human thing. You know, I interpret it one way, somebody else interprets it this way. I'm not going to tell my boss the way someone else. I'm going to, I want to tell my boss the way I interpret it. Well, that may not be the truth, unfortunately. That may just be my interpretation of the truth. So we as leaders, as you become more and more senior, your job is to extract what is really going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the third part of, of, of the culture that was really, really important was um, we never penalized anybody for criticizing or applying thought. So it was a very open culture. You know, the, honestly, if even if the most junior person came to me and said, you know, so-and-so did this, I would listen to that person. We would keep it very anonymous. And so it, it was very inclusive in that sense. You know, people were, were very happy to be there. So look, those are the those are the fundamentals. There's, it, each point breaks down into subpoints, obviously, but that's how you build something beyond you. Because if I can be corrected, if I'm the CEO and I can be corrected, well, then anybody can be corrected. And if the only thing we care about is the truth, then guess what? It becomes a very dynamic place where we're constantly innovating and coming up with ideas. And you know, if 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 nobody's penalized, you find that most motivation. The number one reason why people leave is because they're not valued. Usually, if you pay the market rate, you know, then the only reason why someone's going to leave is because they're not valued. So if you value them and you create a culture where they're included, it's usually okay. That's, that's beautiful. You touched on so many amazing pointers, um, but I'm still curious about my initial question, right? So f- approaching a business that is mainly a personal brand. And the reason I'm asking okay, this is yep. part yep. of it is selfish, yep. but also part of it is I know that a lot of our listeners are in the online business space. And I know within the online business space, it's all about, especially like coaches, consultants. It's like, we're very much like you're the figure of the business. Yeah. Uh, yep. So I'm very curious if you had any advice for them when it comes to scaling the business and slowly detaching yourself. Like, is it, is that even possible? Can you detach yourself from a business that is focused mm-hmm. on a personal brand? Okay. So if, if, 
somebody came to me with an idea and said, this is what I want to do. I would say at the beginning, um, don't make the business about you. Don't, don't mm. even use your name. Um, you know, every company I've ever had, I've never used my name. You'll never find, you know, you know, you know, Jelani Limited or Jelani Co. Because it, then it is about you. <laughs> then you can't leave, right? you know, because it's, it's got your name on it, right? So, 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 so the first thing I would say is, do not make it about you. Make it so. Yes, you could be the figurehead for now, but but ultimately, so you could call it, you know, advanced consulting. Or I mean, something a bit more creative than that. But you know, mm-hmm. but but the point is, your main USP is what I would what I would brand it as. That's the first mm-hmm. thing I would do. Um, secondly, I, as time goes on, I would introduce to my to my clients while I'm still in the business other people who are at my level. And I would slowly introduce those people as the face of the business as well. So it would never be I'm going back and these new people are going to take over my business because, you know, customers associate emotionally with individuals. So you cannot do that. But you can slowly introduce other other leaders as you take more more of a backward step, not backward step, sorry, more of a, a, a background step, I should say, really, not, mm. not backward. Um, and thirdly, you know, the, the most important thing to build is products. If you can build products, even in a consulting business, if you can build products um, away from just consulting, you can, as over time, start to make the products the forefront of your business. And there are, you know, I've, I've got many ideas around that. Um, you know, but 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 those are the three things I would do. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been in a situation? Well, I'm, I I think you probably have. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where, well, you know, a question before this is. At what point and at what point in your business do you deem it appropriate to start planning an exit? And generally the exits that you've had, were they intentional intentional from your part or were they offers that you've received and then decided, well, this might be lucrative to, to take to take on essentially? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um I think person I can I can say from my personal experience, every exit was planned. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 would uh, we would you know bootstrap some money together in the first days, and we would say right in ten years. So uh, so the deal that we had with, with the co-shareholders was within ten years we will sell the business, mm-hmm. or if someone makes a bid with a minimum ticket of this much, we will sell the business. So everybody came in with that expectation because some people didn't want to be there 10 years. Some people want to be a year. Some people want to be three years. Some people want to be whatever. So, so we said, look, to, to kind of make it fair, we say within 10 years, we would look to sell. Um, and we'll start the process at year eight. Um, or if someone came along and made a minimum ticket price of this, we would sell the business. Mm. So that, that's just how we did it. Right. Um, but I know I've worked with founders um, who haven't done that. They've just run a business. It got really successful. It got really big. So, so, you know, someone came along and said, "Hey, you know, uh, you, you know, you know, you've done really well. Uh, would you like this much money?" And they're like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And you know, they kind of phoned me up and we're uh, uh, talking about a deal. So, you know, there's there's more than one way. Really, it, it really is about you as a person. But me personally, I've always planned my exits. Mm-hmm. And so. When you approach the the whole creation process and scaling process of a business, I'm sure that when you're approaching it from a perspective of I'm trying to build a sellable business, then you're going to approach it with a bit of a different mindset. And even there's going to be a different approach than when you're building a business and your your vision is I'm building this for myself and I want to be in this for the long run. What were some of the changes in your approach that, that you've experienced over the years building a business that is sellable over one that you're trying to build just to sustain yourself and your family, for example? Um, I think a, I mean there's huge differences. I mean huge. I mean, if you if you are looking at businesses that you're trying to sell, 
you're looking at metrics of value that are very different to businesses that you are essentially just you know you know paying the bills or or, mm-hmm. or living a a comfortable life you know you know um what are some every, of those metrics what so, are some of those so metrics? Okay, yeah so uh, for example if you're if so uh let's give a simple example right if you're in an industry that trades at 10 times ebitda or profit right if we just keep it simple so for for every pound of profit somebody is willing to pay 10 pounds that's mm-hmm. pretty much pretty much uh uh how the equation right yeah yeah now the now a profit is a component of of both revenue and cost so you start thinking how can i cut cost and how can i increase revenue you start making decisions that are very very different to how you would if you were just running a business and you're trying to live a comfortable life yeah mm-hmm. so for example you may you may think about every additional pound in a very different way the second thing and this this is one of the i mean i have issues with with private equity for for certain reasons that I, and one of them is that businesses are then built for an exit valuation which immediately after the exit the business isn't at the at the value it was sold for because someone literally emptied the tank that's pretty much the best the best example i can give you you know it's like you know someone gave you a car and you're the second in line to actually borrow the car and they just drained every every last you know liter of petrol and said hey you go here's a car you got to fill the petrol up right you know and so you're paying for this guy's journey that's part of the problem uh with with private equity you can get into this really really strange market uh, uh distortions um mm-hmm. which which then kill um good established businesses which which are, are not doing that but and anyway that's a, that's a whole different issue um so you know you start making calculate anyway the, the, to to answer your question, you start making calculations like that. Um, you start building things like AR, ARR, which is recurring revenue versus non-recurring revenue. So you put all your emphasis on things that are locked into contracts over five years, blah, blah, blah. May not be the best thing for your business. It may not be something that you really want to do, but that has a higher multiple. So that might give you a 15 times multiple than, than something which is which is not, you know, uh, 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 recurring in revenue. So then you, what, what do you do? You start prioritizing the things that, that kind of give you a higher return um and so on and so forth so it's it's a very different way to do business it mm-hmm. is not it is not the same at all it's a whole different ball game in my opinion yeah one thing as well that i think uh, is important to highlight and it's something that we've done in omarpreneur uh from the start because i've always wanted to treat omarpreneur as uh as a an enterprise that is separate from me and that anyone can come in and run the ship because it's bigger than me and 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 i want it to be really a vision more than just like one person running a ship yeah. and one of the things that i've always done is i've established processes sops hire you know even like hiring practices management practices uh here's the structures for the our team meetings here's the structures for you know how to deal with certain situations here's all the kpis for every single role in each, in each department and being very very methodical about that and i think that's one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't do as they start off is they think oh i'm just a small business so i don't yeah. need to map out my processes i don't need to kind of outline what what i do to achieve this goal how we sell this product how we offer this service and then what happens is now they come to hire and it's like Every time you hire someone new, you have to be there. You have to train them one-on-one and you have to use manpower where if you just mapped out everything from the start, now you have processes that you can be like, here, this, this is exactly how we do this. And yeah. I think that's so important as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. One thing I have, uh, I know I'm taking I'm taking advantage of this conversation and hopefully uh, my audience <laughs> is benefiting from it as well. Um, but one thing that, I, that I'm excited to ask you about is 
Um, so when, when we talk about hiring and management specifically, hiring is a big thing in business, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that yeah. you've, you've made some hiring decisions um, throughout your journey as well. And, and sometimes, you know, we hire people in business that just help us really catapult to the next level. And sometimes we hire people in business and it ends up being money that's thrown down the drain and it's a mistake and we have to restart and it's lost time, lost money, lost, lost uh, effort. So what have you noticed to be maybe two or three hiring practices or maybe even two or three kind of traits qualities that you look for when you're hiring someone to make sure that they're a good fit within the role and that they're going to be a high performer? Well, yeah, hiring is, that is, for me, the, the I would say the number one challenge, actually. Mm. Um, I would say the, the biggest asset a company has is its people. Again, very much overstated point, actually. Um, but, but actually, it's it's true for a number of reasons. Um, but it's one of those things that is very, it, it's an art, really, not a science in, mm-hmm. in many ways. However, how does, how, how can we make it more scientific? Well, first of all, I would say, um, I actually wrote a, a blog about this exact point. Yeah, you know, how do you how do you how, how do you retain staff? How do you motivate people? Is there such a thing as a motivational uh, trick? Um, it's on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll try and find yeah. it and share it later. Inshallah. And you know, really, there's there's a few things you can do. Number one, when you are hiring anybody for any role, the question you have to ask is, what value does this role really bring? Right. Is this linked to my uh, plan, and is it linked to my is the plan linked to my strategy? W- why is that important? Because if you're not careful, if you're indecisive, or you keep changing your mind as to well, why something is even there, if someone then you hire somebody for a role that you no longer need six months later, you're gonna you're really gonna mess up the mm-hmm. culture in your company. So the first thing we we spoke about is the culture. You're gonna mess up your culture. You're gonna make a very aggressive place to be, and people are gonna start to resent you. If you keep if you if you if you keep doing that, so so that's the first thing is what is this role really for? Okay, number two, I would say, be very clear what you expect this person to do. Because what what people do, they hire and they say, "How are you doing? Here's the role," and they talk about the role and they talk about their culture and they talk about some emotional stuff and they say this guy's perfect fit, and then they realize, hang on a minute, this person doesn't do any of the things I wanted them to do because we never spoke about what do I actually want you to do? What's the day to day? What is it that I actually want you to do? Yeah. Um, and now I would break that down and say, well, not only what do I want you to do today, what do I want you to do in six months' time, and what mm-hmm. do I want you to do in a year's time, and what do I want you to do in two years' time? Right. That's we got to be very clear about that. So, so that w- we then do what I call a functional interview. So we do three three interviews. Number one, the functional interview. The functional interview is answering this very question: Is this role necessary? What do I want you to do in day one? What do I expect in, to, in day two? And what do I expect in day three? And as 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 much as we can, if it's a technical thing, we would we would expect you to do a test. So that's that's the function out the way, and that solves seventy percent of problems immediately. Because how many times have you seen a company right, where they hire people and two years later everyone's gone, yeah. or six months later everyone's sacked because they have never worked this out? Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is we then do is we do a cultural test a a cultural interview so this now is okay you pass the test you fit we what we want you to do you know exactly what we want you to do we all agree this is fantastic we kind of agree a price uh, a cost uh, you know a salary i should say sorry and so it's as that's great a package now the next question is will you fit in here which is now a different so now 
this test should only be done by the CEO or one of the executive team. Because remember what we said at the beginning, the culture is the most important thing. So how do you safeguard culture? One of the really important ways you safeguard culture is someone that comes into your culture has to fit your culture. Mm -hmm. So this is a test about how we roll as a company, what we prioritize, yeah? So we said we're a thinking company. Are you a thinking person? Let's, and let's do some examples of that. We will put people into scenarios, into various form, uh, formats to see what kind of person are you really? Um, and, you know, are you comfortable with being with uh, using data for everything, for all your decisions and so on. You'd be surprised actually how many people have failed the cultural test, but they passed the functional test because they're fantastic, but they can't work in my company. You know, often they come from a, a big company, everything is laid out, is mapped out. And, you know, we do this and, you know, these are the KPIs, these are the OKRs and, and here it's a bit not like that. And so they, they just think because they don't know how to, how to operate. So, so that's how we safeguard that uh, a second point. And the third one, you know, uh, retention is, Every kind of six months to a year, we just check in on people, how they're feeling. We we actually um, make pay and remuneration pretty transparent. So at the start of the year, we say, look, this is this is the market rate. This is what we're willing to pay you. Um, if you achieve these five things or these six things or these three things, we will then give you a pay rise of X and it will be guaranteed. So just achieve those things. Your pay rate is, your pay is not even going to be questioned. And then what then happens is that you get to the end of the year, the only negotiation is, did you achieve them? If the answer is yes, then you just get your pay rise. And we kind of take that awkwardness and that level of trust or uh, sorry, uh, distrust away. Yeah. And these are the three things that we do that kind of helps, helps with mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that, those are some amazing, amazing tips, Michelle. Thank you so much, especially that last one I think is, is phenomenal. Uh, if, if we were to implement just that already, it's going to make such a big difference. So is there, is there any, anything that I didn't ask you about, Brother Gilani, that uh, you felt um, would be relevant to share on this podcast today or anything that you felt like could be relevant for our audience? Honestly, it's it's an area that has so many strands and so many substrands. You know, there's so much we can talk about. We, we can just yeah. talk about thinking alone and, you know, how do you build a thinking culture? We could talk about, you know, level five leaders. What are they? You know, we, we, there's honestly so much we can talk about. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's flowed nicely. There's, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, I, I think the only thing I would say is, is really a mentality thing, which I think, I think generally Muslims in particular, we can, we have suffered at times from a lack of confidence for lots of reasons. You know, some of it is, you know, some, the media, some of it is our own inhibitions. Um, and I, I, I like to just say anybody, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't overly believe in talent. That's, that's actually one of my things. I, I don't think there is obviously a natural talent that exists in people. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't discount that, but I think most things that are considered talent is, are learnable. The question is how much do you want them? It's just a question of how much do you want it? If you want it badly enough, you will find ways to acquire it. You will make sacrifices and you will get there. Um, I would say the biggest mentality shift that people need to have is they need to stop waiting for something to happen. Mm. You know, you have to think about what is possible within your realm and go and go and make it happen. You know, there's, you know, if there's a race, why, why, why is it, why would you not win the race? You have to start thinking about it in that way, which is, you know, if there was a race, okay, if I'm obese, then I'm not going to win that race. Then that means I need to get fit. Do you see? So the next race or the one after that or the one after eventually, I should start winning the races, right? 
It's the same thing in entrepreneurship. If you do not believe you can do it, if you do not want it badly enough and you do not make it part of your psychology, then you won't be successful. Th these things don't happen by accident. And I, I would encourage Muslims um, and you know, you know, generally anybody really to really think about what is what is possible within their realm. Think about you know what ideas really work, what skills they need to be successful, where the gap is in their skill sets, and start changing yourself to achieve that. And you know that's 100%. that's that's my parting shot. I think. I think. Thank you so much. Jazakallah khair for that, Brother Jilani. This was an amazing, amazing statement to end with because honestly, it really is all about mindset at the end of the day. It boils down to that. If you believe you can do it, then you can. If you believe then you, that you don't, then you won't. Um, where can people go to connect with you and, 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 and kind of stay in touch with you, inshallah? Um, I, I generally use LinkedIn. I, I try and avoid all the other social media because I just find it too drowning, to be honest. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn is a perfect place to reach me. Uh, uh, I'm a very, very open networker. So, you know, there are no big, uh, I don't have a huge ego. If you, if you reach out to me, I'll always respond and, you know, we can talk and inshallah see, see uh, how it goes from there. Definitely. So we'll make sure to include uh, that uh, LinkedIn link in the, the episode notes and description, inshallah. Thank you so much for that. And is there anything exciting that you're currently working on that you, you're okay sharing with us as, uh, you know, just a little snippet of what you're currently focusing on right now in yeah, terms of sure. your career? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, I exited from uh, Health IQ, which is a company mm -hmm. that that I co-founded with uh, my my business partners. Mm -hmm. uh, this company was sold to a company called Corevitas, which is a registry business in the US. Mm -hmm. um, I spent four years as the president of the EMR unit for them. Um, as of the end of last year, I, I have actually left those posts because I needed some time and I needed, you know, just to just to take a break and so on. Right. Um, in that time period, I was I was actually meant to be taking a break, but in that time period, I've managed to invest in three or four companies. Uh, be, you know, just people have come to me. I think I think one of them that I'm very, very uh, excited about is called uh, Opto Health. Mm -hmm. um, they are essentially a company that you know takes the A and E waiting time down from hours to minutes. Um, they, they use very very uh, uh, clever AI. Um, and it's really something that I, I'm quite excited by because it goes back to my first point, which is it solves a very real and present problem, which is most people, certainly in the UK and, and quite a lot of Western countries, cannot get access to uh, emergency medicine fast enough. Um, so so this this actually solves that problem. Uh, the leadership team are, are, are people that are very humble, very intelligent, just, just actually fits the right criteria. Um, so I think that will do very, very well. Um, the other thing is I'm also looking at um you know some opportunities in the gulf and the uh, middle east area because i think this is an area that is underserved at the moment mm -hmm. um so i guess one of my main aims over the next year or two is to actually maybe even move out there and to really amazing. help with the entrepreneurial ecosystem over there mashallah amazing well i look forward to to kind of staying up to date on that as well and continuing to be in touch with you inshallah because sure. i will be traveling throughout the next few years as well and i think dubai is on that list as well and, and kind of that entire area of the middle east and so maybe we'll be able to meet uh, in person inshallah I would definitely like that that'll be a pleasure it'll be a pleasure definitely thank you so much Yanni, for joining us on this podcast and everyone please make sure to go and connect with them on linkedin and make sure to stay in touch with them as well if you want to leave the link in the episode notes and of course make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast if you haven't already thank you so much for listening take care guys assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh